0: Thank you. Sorry, I've got a problem with my voice at the moment, so please be patient with me. Um, without any further discussion, I'd like to introduce Auntie Donna Ingram for the Welcome to Country. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Vicky. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure to be here to offer you welcome to Country for this evening's special keynote address titled Indigenous People and Globalisation from Victoria Tauli Koopa's Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples at the United Nations. Tonight's event follows on from a roundtable discussion titled Defence of Country, Aboriginal People Dealing with the Impacts of Globalisation in Australia. I was honoured to attend and offer welcome to country for today's roundtable, so hello again to those who were in attendance this morning, and I'm pleased to join you all again this evening. Thanks again to all of those speakers from across across the country who gave us their insights and shared their knowledge with us today. We are gathered on the traditional land of the Gadigal, who are one of 29 clans of the Eora Nation, which is bordered by the Hawkesbury, the Georges and the Nepean rivers. I'm an Aboriginal woman who proudly identifies with the the Wiradjuri nation through my family connections from a town called Cowra in Central West New South Wales. I was born on Gadigal land and I've had the privilege to live, work and raise my four children on this land for most of my life. I acknowledge the Gadigal, their spirits and ancestors who will always remain with the land Mother Earth and thank them for their ongoing custodianship and for allowing us to meet here tonight for this important and what I'm sure will be an inspiring talk. I'm also very proud to be part of the oldest living culture in the world, the Aboriginal culture of Australia, with our unique and distinct heritage, cultures and identities. I pay my respects to our Elders, both past and present, and we must never forget the sacrifices made by our leaders to create a better future for Aboriginal people. I do this as a reminder and as a tribute to Elders and those who have gone before us to fight for land rights, justice and equity for our community. They have taught us the importance of caring for country and we will continue to honour their legacy. I extend my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from all clans and nations across the country who are present this evening. I also recognise our non-Aboriginal sisters and brothers who walk beside us to protect cultural heritage, country, land and waters. Just a sort of quick aside, I was reminded today by one of the speakers at the round table about the shocking and racist treatment of one of our inspiring and deadly young leaders Adam Goods, from the Sydney Swans over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> so just um, in case anybody hasn't heard, you know, he's repeatedly booed every time he was um, got the ball. Um, So I just wanted to uh, take this opportunity to publicly voice my support for Adam and acknowledge his inspiring leadership and his tenacity for tackling racism in his sport and in the wider Australian community. I now offer you a warm and sincere welcome to the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Wish you a safe stay on the land and safe travel from the land. On behalf of my community and the Gadigal, I wish you an enjoyable evening hearing from Victoria Tawuli Coppers, who in her lecture considers how to reinforce the primacy of human rights in the development of international instruments and laws regulating business activities. Most importantly, we remember that this is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. Have a great evening. Ladies and
2: gentlemen,
0: Distinguished guests, I'd like to start by saying which in my language, the Waramai language, means listen very carefully. I've understood from friends of mine who are studying their language much more than I do that the repetition of the syllables at the end add more importance uh, to the meaning of the word Naranga Barangang, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully tonight because we are very honoured to have who, a person who is arguably one of the most important Indigenous people in the world at this time. She has the brief to represent us as Indigenous people globally at the United Nations, and she is a focus of attention of Indigenous people around the world in their hopes for social justice and a better future for coming generations. My name is Victoria Greaves. I'm Waramai and I work here at this university. It is also my great pleasure to be (coughs) able to introduce Les Melzer, who will in turn introduce Victoria Corpus. Les Melzer is currently a co-chair of the Congress of First Peoples in this country. I've known Les a lot longer than that. And I would like to share with you my admiration for this person who, when I was quite a junior clerk in the Commonwealth Public Service, hoping to make a difference as one of the um, 1,000 Aboriginal teachers that they hope to train by 1990 hoping to make a difference and working within an overwhelmingly hegemonic white, bureaucratic public service. It was Les Melsa who was always there for us. I remember those times when we were frustrated beyond belief and there were things going down and Les would say, let's meet. And in spite of the way that people looked at us around the department, the Aboriginal staff would go off to a meeting room to have time out together and to talk about the things that were bothering us. So when the time came when the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia were looking for the appropriate person to head up the Congress of First Nations, my little voice was out there for Les Melsa because of my experience of knowing you, Les. And I said to you recently, thank you for all that you do. And I mean that. I think that the work that you've done at the United Nations over the years is really something that will go down in history. And I thank you very much for the leadership you provide us. So without further ado, here is Les Melsa to introduce Victoria. To our
3: thank you very much, Vicki. You've made me very nervous now. and also feel very old. (laughs) Um, Let me uh, first acknowledge the Aboriginal peoples of this land on the country we meet, the Gudigal peoples of the Eora Nations. Um, I don't like to call uh, people traditional owners because it might suggest to people that, in fact, they're not the owners, and and our people are the owners of this land here with the Guttigals and all of us all throughout Australia until such time as... um, Uh, the Australian nation makes some settlement with the Aboriginal peoples and the Torres Strait Islander peoples, and as long as we continue to survive and exist as peoples in this country, then um, we will remain people who hold our rights as a matter of inheritance, as being the first peoples of Australia. So I acknowledge the Gadigal peoples. I also acknowledge the ancestors and the spirits who were always with us, and of course, uh, all the best to the future generations. I'd like to say a special uh, welcome to the young people, some who I've met just recently at a training program, and um, it's good to see the youth coming through and uh, being involved in these issues. Today's seminar was very interesting. I only managed to be there until lunchtime, um, but the speakers were very inspiring and in talking about the continued struggle that we have fighting for our lands, fighting for our rights, that, and. Um, As one of the um, Mohawk elders told me when he came out to lecture in Australia, uh, and I said, you know, when will this end? He said, it will never end. We will always be fighting for our country. We will always be fighting to have control and ownership of our resources, but most importantly, to have control over our futures and over our identity. And, of course, the Adam Goods incident reminds us that there is a real problem in this country about um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' being able to have the dignity of who we are as the First Peoples and be able to have our identities. Let me also add that um, in reference to um, the struggle that's going on and uh, the talk that we've talked about rights and many of us hold uh, dear to ourselves the rights that we have and the rights that we exercise, um, these are not rights to be given to us by the Australian government, by any government. These are rights which we inherit. These are rights that are ours, and it's very pleasing in being able to introduce the next speaker to talk about the fight we've had at the international level to have these rights articulated by the United Nations. And the United Nations, if you read the Charter, represents all the peoples of the world, including now the Indigenous peoples. In 2007, the General Assembly acknowledged that the Indigenous peoples of the world are peoples equal to all other peoples of the world. And that brings a challenge here in Australia because even now to this day, um, the governments can't grasp and can't acknowledge what it means to be peoples. They still think as Indigenous Australians that we are aspiring to become individuals um, with equal housing, equal uh, education, equal employment and so on. No, it's much more than that. What, what we are are peoples who are aspiring to take control of our lives to have a say about the future of our childrens and future generations, we are the longest surviving civilization in this world. Um, that doesn't mean that other people have uh, uh, developed beyond us. That's not true at all. It means that we are the most successful civilization in the world, and there's a long way for any um, of the uh, Western societies or other civilizations to go before they'll be able to stand. With the same dignity as we can over our ability to be able to survive in harmony with Mother Nature, uh, in the with uh, the spiritual attachment and the connections to our world. Um, in saying that, uh, let me now introduce uh, these uh, special rapporteur, Vicky Talley Corpus. Vicky and I know each other for quite a long time now, and um, that also makes me feel old. Um, and uh, it's been quite a, a I think a um, wonderful relationship that we've had, that we've been on the same uh, agendas, at the same battlefields, fighting for the same things. And in fact, the last time I think we shared a podium was at the United Nations General Assembly when we spoke to all the nation states of the General Assembly uh, once the vote on the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples had been completed. At that time, Vicky was the chairperson of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous issues, a role which I think, Vicky, you held for two terms, which uh, is the maximum that you can serve in those United Nations positions. And, of course, um, even before that, Vicky uh, was well-known um, as a fighter for the rights of Indigenous peoples, uh, working particularly with a, a, an organisation that I'm very impressed with, Teb Organization of the Philippines, and the way in which Teb has been able to be very active, and in the Asian region, being able to set up and establish the Asian Indigenous Peoples Pact, um, which now represents the Indigenous peoples of the of the uh, Asian region. And um, for us from the Pacific region, we work as closely as we possibly can with uh, uh, AIPP and Teb-teb-e-ba, and along with other regions of the world. So there's quite a network now, and. Um, When Vicky leaves Australia, when I um, uh, finish here and go back to my office and so on, uh, we'll be carrying on agendas that uh, we recently had a week ago where we're getting together and again um, continuing this network that's going on all around the world between Indigenous peoples in order to advance our rights, achieve the equality. So I'll go back to what I was saying before, that our rights do not derive from the government of the day, from the state even though the governments believe that. They believe that they pass a bill, put something in black and white on a piece of paper, and that decides what our rights are and what they're not. Our rights, in fact, derive from ourselves. And we are fortunate, in and we should take courage as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, that the rights we enjoy, the rights we exercise, are backed by the international community, by all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world back our rights. So it's a case of... Australia having to wake up uh, to these situations. Um, Now, again, I'll uh, just um, introduce um, Vicky. Um, She is now uh, being appointed, I think, you're starting the second year, first year, end of the first year as Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, as Vicky has already said, uh, the other Vicky has already said, um, a, a key position in the United Nations. We have some mechanisms there now that deal with the rights of indigenous peoples, the UN mechanism on the rights of indigenous peoples. We had our meeting in Geneva last week. Um, the UN special for, uh, UN Permanent Forum on the uh, Indigenous Peoples, um, uh, which meet, met in April this year for two weeks in New York, um, are both very powerful mechanisms. But I mean, one of the mechanisms established for indigenous peoples has a right to investigate the abuses, the complaints, the de- deprivation of rights of indigenous peoples, and that's the Special Rapporteur. And the Special Rapporteur has a a capacity to engage with any governments, um, with peoples around the world, and to, um, uh, we we, we have to be careful about the word we use. I might say monitor, but states don't like to be monitored. So to assist them, to assist them to meet their obligations that they have to the indigenous peoples of the world. Um, And so it's a very important position. It's a very flexible position. It uh, involves country visits. Uh, This is not an official visit um, uh, to Australia, but we hope that we'll be able to encourage Vicky uh, Tully-Corpus to come back before too long, as a follow-up to the visit we had back in 2011, 2010, I think, somewhere around that period. Um, And um, also uh, the Special Rapporteur has the capacity to um, engage in correspondence. So the people that were speaking today about the struggles they have you should know that you can put down your issues in, in writing, send it off to the Special Rapporteur, and the Special Rapporteur will consider, and most likely, uh, if there's enough information, uh, write back to the government or engage the government and ask for further information, and ask for them to give uh, a report on terms of what they're doing. And once that process starts, it can go on further in the UN system to be looked at and dealt with. So. The ability to be able to engage states in relation to what might be breaches of international obligations is a very, very powerful uh, role indeed. And in that sense, I think we should all be proud of and congratulate Vicky on her appointment as a special rapporteur. Um, It's the third person now that has been appointed as a special rapporteur and the first woman to be appointed to the position. I think that's quite an achievement and um, I'm sure that Vicky's going to bring a lot of... uh, Um, of the issues forward in relation to Indigenous women as well uh, in this issue. And her topic tonight, as I understand it, uh, we'll be talking about issues like globalisation, multinationals, the impact upon Indigenous peoples and so on, the new threats that are emerging as well as the old ones such as mining and so on. But it's becoming a bit of a new frontier on which human rights have to be fought. So without saying any further ado, I would like to introduce you to a, a very good friend, I think an expert, And someone that uh, inspires all Indigenous peoples of the world, Vicky Tauri Corpus. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you very
2: much,
4: Les. you, you enabled me not to say anything anymore about my mandate, so I'm very glad you said <laughs> you said those things. Uh, well, uh, first, let me thank the, uh, the people who, who are custodians or owners of this territory, the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. Uh, thank you for welcoming us as well here. Uh, I think it's really important for us to always remember the, the people who have really ensured that this uh, territory remains uh, indigenous territory and uh, we have to recall every time the contributions that they have done. Uh, I would like to uh, uh, also thank of course the University of Sydney and particularly Vicky Greaves and Catriona Elder who have really been very persistent in in making sure that I will be able to come here. This has been discussed for some time, but I I just didn't have the time to do it. So I'm very glad that I'm able to make it, and I'm very glad for your patience as well. It's really uh, gratifying to know that you are interested to bring me over for this lecture. And to all of you, of course, for coming here even uh, in in the evening. So I I prepared a a PowerPoint just to, just to focus a bit uh, because otherwise I might be going all over and uh, you will not be able to retain some of the things that I'm going to say. So let me move with this so i was asked to do something on indigenous peoples and globalization uh, this has been an issue that i have been covering very closely for sev- for many years now and it's uh, it, it indeed is going to be an, uh, an opportunity to also raise the emerging issues that can threaten the respect and protection of the rights of indigenous peoples so uh, basically what i would do is to just walk you through how, we look at, how I look at globalization, what I see are the impacts and have, have observed as well as talk about how are indigenous peoples responding to globalization and uh, go, uh, zero in a little bit on corporations because they are the dominant players in this uh, phenomenon. And uh, I make a few clone conclusions on what I think are uh, steps that we need to take to be able to protect ourselves from the adverse impacts of globalization on indigenous peoples. We are not saying, and I'm not, I don't say that everything about globalization is bad. I think the globalization of the human rights of indigenous peoples is really a good thing. You know, uh, the globalization of movements from the ground, you know, globalization from below is also a good thing. But for this evening, we're gonna focus on the globalization from above, no? That has been imposed on many of us. Okay, So uh, this is where I come from. I just wanted to introduce my community. I come from the Cordillera region in the Philippines, and we are mainly rice producers. And so our ancestors have carved rice terraces in the highest mountains in the Philippines. And uh, that is uh, one of our contributions in, the, in national and so-called national development. So I come from Uh, Mountain province. It's the only province in the Philippines which has an English name. It's called Mountain Province because it's the most mountainous uh, province in the whole country. So, this is uh, the kind of economy that uh, we are engaged in. Okay, so uh, what is uh, globalization? There are many definitions of globalization. I just want to say that this is the type of development that has been imposed that is basically characterized by the deregulation of economies of the so-called nation states no so when nation states were created after colonization the the rich countries the rich industrialized countries started uh, really creating these nation states in their image no so the kind of economic development which is basically defined by uh, unceasing accumulation of profit you know so-called economic growth you know uh o- the giving a lot of uh of freedom to corporations. This is the kind of uh, system that has been left behind by the colonizers. And unfortunately, many of our uh, politicians adopted that kind of framework. And that is what is globalized. So, globalization for me is just really a continuation of the kind of colonization we face. Of course, we don't have direct colonizers anymore, but they're still very much around because of the systems that that, that uh, our uh, governments have also accepted are, and are implementing so the main characteristic of that now is that many of the uh, you know the laws that protect national economies are deregulated no which means that if you have investment laws in the past which uh, says that you cannot have 100% foreign investment that law is deregulated. It cannot be allowed anymore. And so you have to allow for uh, foreign investment, which ranges up to 100%. In the Philippines, we still have a law which says that only 40% of the of investments can come from foreign, uh, foreign investors, but that's slowly being eroded in the Congress. There's a big move to change the Constitution and remove particularly that provision. So that's what we mean by... Uh, deregulation no? and of course the next part of that thing is the privatization of social services. So more and more we see health services, education services, even uh, uh, services for the, for the old people as well as even now you know, even pe- penal uh, you know, prisons are being privatized you know, because uh, the state is not supposed to be in, engaged with this. The state has to weaken its role in relation to so-called economic and social development then uh, uh, this of course this globalized economy is really very much controlled by transnational corporations which are basically uh, based in the rich countries of the world no and uh, of course they have a lot of uh, uh, instruments in their hands and uh, this is basically facilitated by uh, multilateral financial institutions the world bank the international monetary fund if you have been reading about what's happening to greece for instance, that's exactly what it means no? for the IMF, the, the European Union, the Central Bank of the European Union, are the ones determining the future of Greece and the, and the government, no matter how much it wants to assert its independence, in the end found that it cannot do it, no, it despite the fact that they won the referendum. Now, that's the kind of globalization that, we, that we, many countries are experiencing. The unique thing now is it's the rich countries themselves you know, who used to be rich like Greece, Spain, who are also suffering the same fate as countries like the Philippines. So, uh, so it, doesn't just cut, it doesn't just end with the so-called developing or third world countries. It's also affecting now the poorer countries in the uh, European Union. No? And, of course, some of the main instruments that they have are trade agreements and investment agreements. No? So you have uh, the CAFTA, the, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, or the NAFTA, the North American ones. And the, now they are negotiating TPP, which I think is also of which Australia is a part. No? And, and it looks like they are going to get it. No, and uh, and uh, there are bilateral investment agreements that are like there are more than two thousand, almost three thousand bilateral investment agreements, which define exactly what's the relationship between uh, between countries and uh, and investors. No, okay. So uh, of course, there's a lot of finance liberal liberalization. That's uh, that's the thing that costs. The, the crisis in 2008 in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, and uh, the main economic activity now is financial speculation. No, this is the use of bonds, derivatives, hedge funds. You know, where they bet on the money. They use the money to earn more money. In other words, no. So. Uh, the crisis that we feel now, that we have been going through, is really a cause of this kind of globalization. You know, uh, Reports even from the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund uh, will say that there has never been uh, the level of inequality that we see now, you know, where the richest 1% earn as much as the poorest 57% of the world combined. You know? So that's how powerful this uh, uh, these corporations are, and these people, these billionaires, trillionaires now, you know, where they really own uh, a lot of the world 's wealth you know, and, and, and never in the history of the world has there been a phenomenon like this, and we can understand why it has happened that way, uh, especially if we understand the whole uh, uh, the whole issue of financial investments. You no. Know? And uh, of course, uh, with that is a terrifying consolidation of the powers of corporations, no? Uh, now it's not countries anymore who just are uh, the, the, who hold the largest economies. It's really transnational corporations, no? And, uh, and uh, the, it says that the 50% of the world's largest economies are corporations and 50% are countries. So you can now imagine why, uh, many states have basically weakened themselves significantly because of that kind of power of corporations. No? Uh, this domination is further seen by the fact that they are also, since corporations are everything you know, from manufacturing to financial investments, you know, a lot of the corporations now that are really rich are the financial corporations, you know, the, the investment houses, the banks. No, and uh, you can see that this kind of uh, trading money, that is uh, three trillion, are traded every day. You know, and ninety percent of these are in foreign exchange markets. No, so there are people who simply don't work; they are just betting on the foreign exchange markets. If the dollar, Australian dollar, goes down, they bet on that, and then they win a lot of money if it happens. No, and uh, even in the uh, manufacturing sector, you can see how. The pesticide market, for instance, only six companies control 75 to 80% of this. Uh, you have seen how many companies have consolidated you know, their power. Before you will have uh, different companies, but now they will consolidate into one, you know, and all the other uh, smaller companies will die along the way. Uh, the seed industry, for instance, it's basically DuPont and Monsanto, you know, who, who control the seed markets for maize and soya. And of course, they are the ones who are doing genetic uh, modification of the seeds. So they are the ones who have a control over the GMO seeds. No? Uh, and now there is a lack of uh, regulation for competition and financial speculation, which has led to the crash I mentioned earlier. And now, again, because of the the issue of food insecurity and the need to develop uh, biofuels to address the issue of climate change. This has been used to justify the massive land grabs happening all over you know, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. I don't know how extensive that is here in Australia, but for sure uh, there, are, will, there will be attempts like that, you know, especially because there are new, game, new players coming into the, into the arena. Okay. Uh, one characteristic is the unbalanced or unfair trade agreements. No? Uh, many of these uh, trade agreements that have been negotiated multilaterally or plurilaterally you know, that among few countries have really uh, common features like the lowering of trade barriers. No, because they say that you cannot be putting tax you know when you are trading your own goods, and it's very discriminatory because what is being lowered are the, the products from the developing countries, so for instance, rice, sugar, fruit from the poor countries they have lowered the barriers of uh, you know taxes to this by one hundred percent they are not tax anymore now they are they are taxed by one hundred percent in the country where they are being brought you know so it it's so really an unfair competition. You no, know, for instance, uh, Vietnam pays 470 million for their exports. That's only worth 4.7 billion, while the UK pays the same amount for exports, you no, know, of 50 billion because of all the rules that are crafted that allows them to really uh, do that. You no, know? uh, the big issue in the trade negotiations. That's why the WTO Doha agreement is never concluded even after 11 years of negotiations is the whole issue of agricultural subsidies you know in the united states in europe they subsidize their farmers very heavily to the tune of almost like uh yet uh, in 2002 it was 4 billion and then this went up to 4.7 billion you know and yet there are rules which does not allow the poorer countries to subsidize their farmers so there is always an unequal uh, system where, where, the, where the countries which are rich, they can subsidize their farmers so they can sell agricultural products cheaper than the products raised in the developing countries. No? So for instance, chicken, you know, they raise chicken, they subsidize the chicken producers. Then when the chicken is e- exported to the Philippines, it's even cheaper than the chicken that we raise. No, so that really kills all the, nat- the industries that you have, and and you j- just have to keep on I- importing from them. No, that's the kind of uh, uh, phenomenon that happens because of these subsidies, and that has been the most difficult thing to negotiate. No, uh, th- then we go to financial investments. No, that are now, as I mentioned, 90% of what money going around the world goes for financial speculation it's not even anymore in production of manufactured goods or production of agricultural commodities it's really betting it's the global casino they are betting on the money no so uh the bond market in the 70s was around 1 quint quintillion, I don't even know how many zeros there are <laughs> in a quintillion, but anyhow, it's more than a trillion, so, and then now, the, in 19, just in 1998 alone, it's 25 quintillion, so you can just imagine it must have tripled by now, no? And then, I, as I mentioned earlier, according to the UNCTAD, this is the UN... Uh, uh, Commission on Trade and uh, Development. There are now 2,279 bilateral investment treaties negotiated between uh, between the investors and the countries. You no, know? and these treaties are ve- negotiated in secret. You will not even know what these treaties are all about. You know, so I'm sure in Australia you have negotiated a lot of this, but nobody knows. It will only be known when finally the agreement is reached. You no. Know? So I, I look, I'm, I'm actually looking at this issue now. My next report for the uh, General Assembly is on investments. So I'm looking into the obligations of uh, in bilateral uh, investment treaties or the ob- investment chapters of free trade agreements, no, which can undermine the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And what I have found out is that it's the U.S. model bilateral investment treaty is the model that's almost used, In maybe 80% of the of the uh, of the bits that are that are being negotiated everywhere, no. And uh, what what uh, I saw here is that this uh, bilateral investment treaty is so binding on the governments and and all levels of government, no, including all political subdivisions and entities that exercise regulatory administrative or governmental authority. You know? So there was a case where the Titai Tokirau District Maori Council, they were concerned because when the government negotiated uh, an investment treaty, they failed to consider the UN Declaration. You know? So the UN Declaration is not, of course, considered at all. So their capacity to, to determine you know, the kinds of investment that come in their communities is already undermined substantially. No? Uh, this also means that indigenous governments, such as the tribal governments in the U.S., or the Nunavut, the Greenland uh, government, or the autonomous regions of Nicaragua, because there are indigenous governments which are autonomous, uh, they have to comply with the provisions of a U.S. bilateral investment treaty. And failure to do that means that the country which signed the treaty, uh, which uh, sign the BIT will can sue the national government no under the investor to state dispute settlements for unlimited monetary damages and this is why it's so strongly enforced and that's why it's so powerful it trumps all the social and environmental agreements that a government has signed no so for instance one example uh, ecuador no ecuador has been doing oil exploration for more than 30 years uh, the companies involved were Chevron, you know, Petro-Ecuador, and all that. And then the indigenous peoples filed a case against Chevron because it has, it has substantially destroyed a lot of their communities. They brought the case to the Supreme Court of the United States. They lost. They brought it again back to Ecuador, and they won. No, but when the ruling was that the Chevron should pay the communities for the remediation of the uh, oil spills and all that, uh, the the arbitral the arbitral court, which is usually the ICSID, this is the International Court for Settlement of Investment Disputes under the World Bank, ruled that uh, the Chevron shouldn't pay. It should be Ecuador who will pay the people who, who were whose lives were messed up. You know. So this is the kind of uh, decisions that are always made. And usually, what the the experts told me is that in the uh, the the courts, the arbitral courts. Uh, usually the, the arbitration panels are composed of lawyers which are also paid for by the transnational corporations. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's the reason why almost like 80% of the cases, uh, the investor always wins, you know, and the country being sued always loses. And if they lose and they cannot pay, they will look all over at what are the assets of that government and they will seize those assets. No, if you recall Nauru, you know Nauru was a small country who has been producing this bat uh, the uh, the bat pool you know as fertilizer and everything, and they got rich with that, but eventually all the bat uh, 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 dung was were locked, were gone and so they 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 lost a lot of money they went bankrupt. but what they did to sa- to sort of uh, have some savings was to uh uh deposit money here in Australia no so that they will whenever this opportunity happens then they can they can uh, withdraw that money but the japanese who in, who loaned them a lot of money and the vulture funds also they discovered that they have money here in australia so they came here to australia and then they they got the court to have a restraining order that the nauru government cannot withdraw that money anymore no because it has to be used to pay the in the ones who invested in that country. So that's the kind of uh, phenomenon that's happening more and more. And it really, you know, it affronts your whole moral, you know, the moral, what's the morality of doing this kind of thing? A country is so down, the people are already in a very bad shape. And yet you can, you can just do that because the rules say so, no. So that's the kind of uh, situation with the financial uh, sector. And that's precisely why Uh, I decided that I'd like to do a study on investments because in the end, investments coming from anywhere will define what's going to happen in your country. And I've just been listening to some of our friends who were sharing with me about a big mining company, uh, which is now going to be funded by Chinese investments. And that's the new thing more and more because China is the number two. Country in the world who has has the most money, more and more it's going to be Chinese investments that will come into your country. And they will be negotiating these kinds of investment agreements as well. Okay? So uh, there are many other examples, you know. And in fact, here, this is what I saw saw about Western Australia, you know. um, I, from what I gathered, Aboriginal communities in Western Australia use their power to make bylaws under the Aboriginal Communities Act to prohibit alcohol sales, you know, because, uh, maybe to control uh, the, the alcoholism happening. And if, uh, with, that pro- uh, pro- uh, with that prohibition under the bilateral investment agreements, this can violate a market access commitment, no? That is contained there, and that can be be illegalized because that is not part of uh, of uh, the agreements under these investment agreements, no? So, so those are some examples. Like if you want to do tobacco control or alcohol control, tobacco control because there is now a uh, convention to control tobacco, you can be liable to be sued by these investi- investing uh, companies. No? And then there's another treatment which is called national treatment that investors from other countries will have equal treatment as your own investors. No? And an example of this was that, uh, for instance, in Fiji, 87% of their lands cannot be sold. However, under the World Trade Organization uh, agreement, Fiji agreed to give national treatment to foreign investors who will invest in the hotels. You know? So that will undermine significantly any Fijian who would like to invest in hotels. He will have a stiff competition with the foreign investors. You know? So that's the kind of, uh, of uh, example that can be cited insofar as these investment agreements are concerned. Now uh, let me go. I mean, I, I know all of you will know this. Know that uh, some of these agreements and globalization has really led towards ecological, cultural crisis and food insecurity. You know, uh, ecological crisis can be seen in uh, peak oil. No, now we don't know whether there's peak oil because there is now shale oil fracking has allowed for more more uh, generation of oil so maybe that's a wrong formulation. but anyhow the the oil has run out that they have to go towards fracking and all these different kinds of oil extraction that are very uh, environmentally damaging no uh, climate change i always say that climate change is really a a result of the kind of development paradigm that most of our governments have adapted, no? where you just extract, continuously extract your resources, use fossil fuels, you know, even if there are potentials for renewable energy, you don't go into that. You know? So uh, that has really been the main reason why we are now having this problem. No? Of course, the erosion of biodiversity. You no, know, uh, food insecurity. In uh, uh, the da- the data from the Food and Agriculture Organization says that uh, three billion people now live on less than two two dollars a day. You no, know, that's almost half, like more than a half of the world's population. You no, know? uh, so uh, that's one one issue. And then of course the cultural crisis. You know the continuous. Uh, you know, uh, how do you call it, brainwashing of people to think that the American dream should be the dream of every person in the world, no? And which means that continuation of unsustainable production and consumption, and uh, of course, destruction of indigenous cosmovisions, value systems, which will be replaced by the the values being promoted of hyper-individualism, you know, incessant consumption, that's the way that you can grow, uh, short-term, you know, short-term thinking and all that. Those are the kinds of values and thinking being, being propagated widely, and that is what a lot of people believe in. Fortunately, I think many of the youth nowadays are more, are more, how do you call, it, critical. Many of them now are shifting towards vegetarianism, your know, lower consumption, and I think that's a method, that's a source of hope for uh, many of us, no. Now uh, the specific impacts on indigenous peoples. Again, uh, this is something that uh, that would be familiar with most of you. Uh, the worsening expropriation of lands, territories, and resources. The destruction of indigenous economies. We still maintain that we have a lot of in diverse indigenous economies all over the world, but these are very much under threat because of the kind of globalization that we see. You no know? food insecurity and hunger. No out migration uh, this is why we have a phenomenon of overseas contract workers all over you know, from from Asia you know in uh, going everywhere you know, and uh, loss of uh, livelihoods as well. Uh, our Maasai friends, the pastoralists who are in Africa, are telling us that now slowly their lands the grazing lands of their cows and goats are being enclosed because these are being uh, acquired by by uh, by investors who are buying the land no for food security and biofuel production so you have cases where the prince of dubai for instance bought a huge you know hundreds thousands uh, of hectares of maasai land which are used for grazing the cows no so those the, those are the kinds of livelihoods that will disappear because of this kind of phenomenon increasing poverty and there is uh, now data that shows uh, more feminization of poverty, no. There are uh, indigenous women who used to be more, you know, active in their own economies are now pushed away from their communities, and they end up, uh, you know, in in as uh, domestic workers or as in brothels, or they are the ones who are very much trafficked. No, so that's the kind of impoverishment that's happening. Uh, of course, greater conflicts, there are more conflicts now, in, in internal conflicts in many communities because of this kind of uh, development. Uh, a lot of divisions are created between indigenous peoples and between them and other populations. You know, I can cite in the Philippines when an extractive industry wants to enter our country, and in our law we have a very strong law which says uh, free prior informed consent of the people have to be indigenous peoples have to be obtained before any company comes in. What usually happens is that the company in in compli, you know, in complicity with the government, they create a new tribal council that will give the consent you not know, to the to, uh, to have that company operate. And it's happening in, in many parts of the country. It's only when the indigenous people suddenly try to assert their claims that some of them are rectified. But in most cases. That happens all the time. No? Uh, the environmental pollution, of course, as well as the inadequate and inappropriate social services. No? The privatization of social services has been there. Now the measure being pushed in many poor countries is what they call conditional cash transfers no Where they, the, the, the it's a dole out you know they will give you the money so that you will send your children to school or you will have the woman go and have check up in the in the hospitals or rural clinics and many indigenous women in my at least in my country and in Paraguay which i also visited uh, officially they said that you know it's very difficult for us because number 1 there are no rural hospitals or clinics in our place uh, these are very far. So before we can even reach those clinics, we we have to be carried. And then some people die, some women die giving birth along the way. And, and that's because we want to get 1,400 uh, pesos, which is like $20, you know, unless you show a certificate that says you went and have yourself checked up by a doctor, then you will never be able to get that money. So that's the condition for this conditional cash transfer. And that is happening in many parts of the world. Now it's so insensitive to indigenous peoples that in the end, it's going to create much more damage than help the people rise above poverty. No? Uh, there's also now an increasing amendment of strong laws protective of indigenous peoples. Like, For instance, if you recall in 2001 when the When the Mexican government wanted to to remove Article 27 of their constitution, because this is the constitution that uh, recognizes collective rights to lands under a system called Ido system, Uh, the NAFTA when they uh, when they became a member of the North American Free Trade Agreement, that was the first thing they wanted to be removed. No, so they were going to repeal that uh, article, and that led to the Chapas uprising. No. And, and and up to now, that it remains as a sticky issue, which has been causing all these uh, cr- conflicts in Mexico. You no, know? uh, in the Philippines, they are wanting to to also amend the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act. They are making uh, uh, executive orders that will nullify actually a lot of the the that will undermine a lot of the processes that you 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 have to go through to be able to get your ancestral domain title. You no, know? uh, in India, now they are wanting to to uh, weaken their forestry act, which is the only act in the country which really recognizes strongly the rights of indigenous peoples to their forests. You no. Know? And uh, in in there is a consultation, you know, in the ILO convention 169 there is a provision there where the government should set up their consultation laws but they haven't uh, now they want to undermine those laws and the ILO itself is not being active in terms of implementing the convention you no know, in fact they're undermining it themselves because of the uh, interest of corporations so uh, the corporations as i said are the dominant players and in the UN uh, and, and, and uh, of course, indigenous peoples have responded very strongly. No? So these are the the responses. I don't need to go through each of them because this is what you're doing. You are resisting. You are stopping projects. You are mobilizing yourselves to be able to demand reform of laws. And there are many indigenous peoples all over the world who are filing cases before their courts as well as in the international or regional courts. No? So I, I was in Paraguay. Last year, that was my first country visit, they filed a case against the Paraguay government, and they won in three cases, no, where the government has to expropriate land and give it back to them. So that was very good, and the, we were hailing the law. But when I went there, it's hardly implemented. They cannot implement it because the owners of the land refuse to get the payment of the government. No? So that's the kind of undermining that's happening, even if you win those uh, those uh, cases in court it's not very easy to implement contrasted to the in financial laws you no know, which you can really you have to do it because otherwise you will be fined uh, billions of dollars if you don't do it so the enforcement power of the investment laws are very strong you know? so uh, of course we have to also persuade companies to really uh, change the way they are behaving you know. Uh, a lot of greenwashing is happening. There's also bluewashing, which is you know they use the UN. You know the UN has this global compact with transnational corporations, and then if they get the seal of the UN, they present themselves as as good companies because they are adhering to UN uh, UN standards. You no, know? but in most cases it's not true. You no, know? so we have to be very careful about those as well. You no. Know? The engagement with the international processes, that is what a lot of indigenous peoples are doing now. Not enough. We think that it's not really enough. There really needs to be much more work done on this, uh, where you make use of the existing mechanisms of indigenous people, on, uh, dealing with indigenous peoples, as well as uh, other conventions, like the Convention on Biological Diversity, there, there are now provisions there which uh, respect the rights of indigenous peoples, particularly their right to their traditional knowledge. No? Uh, the UN Climate Change Convention, now we are pushing hardly to put human rights into the center of the decisions that will be arrived at in Paris in December. No? Uh, community strengthening is really, for me, it's one of the more long-lasting solutions. No? Because at the end of the day, if the communities are able to assert and claim and really uh, strengthen themselves to be able to do development in the way they would like to do it, that will be a guarantee against all these kinds of developments that force them to go towards a direction they don't like to. No? Uh, I will show you later how we are doing the mapping, for instance, or the resource inventory, as well as uh, com- participatory community monitoring. No. Uh, the documentation and uh, production of materials use of social media. I like what we have heard this afternoon, I'm so impressed, you know, by the work of uh, those who presented in terms of using the media, social media in raising more uh, extensively the issues, you know, and exchange learning visits as well. So uh, this is just a picture of the Zapatista women, you know, who were the ones involved in the protest against that uh, amendment of the of Article 27 of the Mexican Constitution. And this one is the mapping exercise that I'm talking to you about. This is the Philippines, no? We have 7,100 islands. And uh, we have, uh, uh, together with others, we developed maps which will show where indigenous peoples' territories are as well as where the biodiversity and forests are found, no? So you can see that these are the biodiversity hotspots. Uh, the Philippines is considered a biodiversity mega hotspot because we have been isolated for so long. We have a lot uh, of biodiversity. You know? So these are the hotspots in the whole country. And these are also the protected areas and national parks which were declared by the government. You know? Then these are the ancestral domains because we have a national law that recognizes our ancestral domains. And if you uh, and this is the Cordillera, this is the head of the the island. This is where I come from, the middle part, that's the Cordillera, just to show you how it uh, overlaps with the other things. No. So you see that these are the national parks. They are outside basically of our uh, territory because we didn't like national parks. No, we don't think that it will serve our uh, issues. And then you have this uh, ancestral domains. So these are the ancestral domain titles in our territory, the blue ones. But this is also where you can see the, uh, the biodiversity, not much here, but in the Sierra Madre. You know? and, uh, and if you overlap the ancestral domains, that's how it looks like. You know? So for us, the reason why we did this kind of mapping is because we want to prove to the government that the indigenous knowledge systems and practices were the ones that, has, that have conserved the forest and sustained the biodiversity. You know, It's not the government program like a uh, national parks or what have you that did it. And, uh, and therefore, we should, they should really support strongly the efforts of communities to continually sustain their uh, ecosystems. and. The rights of the indigenous peoples to continue to have those territories uh, uh, sustained, no, and, uh, and 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 I have a suspicion that in many countries in the world this is the same story, you know, because we did also. I saw a map in uh, in in Brazil and in Indonesia it coincides where the, fo- the remaining forests in those countries are actually found in indigenous territories. You know? In fact, in Brazil, there was um, a protected area. All the forest is gone, and the only part where the forest is maintained is the indigenous people's territory, which is not part of the protected area. You no, know? So that, that, that really, for us, that really co- convinces me that we really need to fight very strongly for traditional knowledge, for our own natural resource management systems, for our capacity to really protect our lands and sustain this, because that is the solution to the problems that the world is facing today. We are not just the victims, we are the ones who are going to offer the solutions to all this crises that we are facing now. No? So... Uh, I just uh, would like to end with this that you know the use of multilateral of, uh, complaints and justice mechanisms has to really be enhanced further. No uh, use of multilateral complaints mechanisms like the Committee on the Racial Discrimination, the Special Rapporteur mechanism. I'm not just the only rapporteur. There are 37 thematic special rapporteurs: one on the right to water, right to food, um, rapporteur on displaced. Internally displaced persons on people who are uh, subjected to extrajudicial killings, no? human rights defenders. So there are many rapporteurs whom you can send your complaint to. Of course, the main thing is for me, because if you are uh, uh, complaining about the violations of your collective rights party, especially, then that comes to me. No? But uh, there are many rapporteurs which can really look at the issue. No? Uh, there are also the inspection panels of the banks. And there is the, inter, the, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, there is the Caribbean <coughs> Court, of course, the Supreme Court, but also your tribal and customary justice systems. No? It, these are the justice systems that are not used very extensively, but actually in, in, under the UN Declaration, uh, you, you should have the, equal, you know, the right to, to use your own uh, uh, tribal justice systems whenever you, you want to seek redress as well. You know, so that is one area where we should uh, beef up, the work should be beefed up further because there are cases really where the customary courts decided and they managed to kick out companies, you know, like in the Philippines, in, in one, uh, in one uh, community, it was the tribal court who decided that a uh, uh, Canadian mining company cannot operate anymore and they kicked out the company. You know? So there are those kinds of uh, situations as well. No? And then uh, just to remind us again of the human rights obligations of states who are the duty bearers and that they have to respect, protect and fulfill the rights of indigenous peoples as contained in the UN Declaration as well as the ILO Convention 169. No? And uh, this, is, this has to be stressed always because uh, sometimes they want to escape from this obligation, but actually in the in international human rights law, These are their key obligations, no, that they should respect, which means that they should not interfere, no, that the the rights are not to be interfered with by the state or corporations. They should protect, you know, which means that they should protect indigenous peoples from third parties who are going to interfere with uh, the enjoyment of human rights and uh, fulfill, they should take positive steps to promote and support the realization of our rights. and the state accountability, if they do it, it can be a countervailing power to control and regulate the uh, private sector. So the legislature has a role to play, the executive, and of course the judiciary, all of these branches of government need to be beefed up, they need to be enlightened about what are the responsibilities in human rights implementation. And then there's also the guiding principles for business and human rights, which uh, uh, some indigenous peoples have been taking active part in, and so there's now uh, these are voluntary, unfortunately, no. But the, the respect, the protect, respect and remedy framework is now being touted strongly as a responsibility of corporations, and this is what they should be doing, you know. And uh, and now there is just recently there is a resolution adopted by the UN for a legally binding instrument, no, on transnational corporations, no. So uh, this, uh, this is. I would like to conclude by just mentioning what are the steps that you, we you should take. Uh, more awareness raising. We cannot under stress this, no. On 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 our rights, not only for ourselves, but also by by institutions, government institutions, and participation, community strengthening, you no. Know, and the need for us to beef up our knowledge about globalization as well. I mean, this coming. Uh, agreements will really destroy us, so we have to be very active in trying to respond to this. Like, for instance, we can ask for exceptions to investment agreements when these rules violate uh, social or environmental standards. The training and education that we need, the recovery of indigenous knowledge systems, and the research and documentation which will provide evidences of the problems as well as the substantial contributions that we make. And that we are going to provide to the world at large. No, there is now uh, research done where, like for instance, forests of indigenous peoples are sequestering more carbon than any of the other uh, parts of, uh, you know, of uh, land land uses in other countries, and and it has been documented very well. No, okay. So that's it. This is the this is my uh, website. You can go to my website. You know, and you can see that. All the reports of the previous rapporteurs all my reports are there and when you want to submit a uh, a complaint to me there's also a guide there which is uh, which shows which are the what will you be uh, putting in the letter or the report that you are sending to me so uh, this is basically uh, what I wanted to share Uh, thank you very much Our time, there's a time for questions or a brief comments, isn't it? We have? When you say you put together the maps of the company that showed the different areas,
0: was <laughs> that the the event that you work for or was it a different no.
2: organization
0: every other
4: No, it was with a different it was our uh, organization with other NGOs as well as the government. So it was done by the by PAPID, which is a mapping group, and then we supported them. And then the government also got engaged. So it's actually an official government map. You know? And I, it's very easy to do that now, because if you have the technology, the GPS, the GIS, and you can show them, they will never contest your, your uh, data. You know? And it's a very powerful tool if the indigenous peoples would like to use it themselves.
0: Mm? Yeah. Come on. I um, just wanted to know um, what
4: are your thoughts about the post values of communities
0: that's currently happening here in the Could you just say a little more? Yeah. The post values of communities are in WI, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, right?
4: have that issue about the people being. Uh, Driven away from yeah, the Okay. The yeah. Well, actually, I made a comment on that. No, I was in fact, I was covered by the Guardian. I made a press release saying that uh, this uh, measure, if go, it's going to be taken, is is violating the basic rights of indi- of the Aboriginal Australians to stay in their communities. You know, because I from what I read and from what I was uh, the reports I received, so saying that the government cannot be using. Uh, you know, cannot subsidize, isn't it, the lifestyles of the Aborigin, <laughs> Aboriginal people. And I really thought that was such a racist comment. And that was the headline of the of the article which came up from Garjan. Saying <laughs> 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 I, I, I said, it's max of racism. Then one day, the ambassador from Geneva called me and Said, "Oh, I want to meet with you when you are in Geneva." So I said, "Oh my God, maybe he maybe he saw that article and he will scold me <laughs> because, because I'm not." I, 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 and then, but anyway, he, he didn't raise it. He was very good. He just had, had breakfast, invited the U.S. ambassador, Canada, and New Zealand. So we had some discussions. But but you know, I made my strong comment about it. I really think it's not. I mean, it shouldn't be done. I mean, if if, if those people live in their own traditional territories and displacing people from their traditional territories is an affront to their identities, their cultures and their lifestyles and the way they think. You know, I, 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 I live in my own community so I know how, how I will die for not, being, I mean, if, I mean, for not being sent out from my own community. If they go out, that is of their own accord but it should not be done on the basis of a, a policy or a ruling or an action taken by the government where they will not give resources and sort of you know it's like hamleting effectively you know they will dry your resources and that will push you but i don't think that will happen anyhow indigenous peoples won't allow for that to happen i hope and i I hope nothing has been no community has been displaced yet no there's um there's also a lot of indigenous That is, uh, they're attempting to displace, and that's at Redfern 10th Embassy. So, Mm -hmm. people haven't gone down recently to show solidarity with the fight to keep indigenous people there Uh and then go down. Right. be
0: really
1: welcome
0: you. Thanks for your great talk. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about what you think of the strategy of the Bolivian government Mm -hmm. because. Your talk really criticized global mm-hmm. corporate um, excess and right. capitalism. Indigenous yeah. governments
4: moving outside. Yeah. The Indigenous government is moving outside the bounds mm. of the neoliberal framework, right. sitting on the IMF and the World Bank. Do you think that is the is the way to go for the um, anti colonial structures? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, that uh, of course that the fact that they uh, Bolivia for instance have. half extreme poverty already. They achieved their Millennium Development Goals mainly because what they did was to nationalize their oil industry and then most of the income from that they used for social services. And they were able to really cut back the poverty. You no. Know? And then of course they also filed a case against the Bechtel Corporation who privatized their water. You know, and they but now they are filed there as like uh, 50 billion dollars filed against them by Bechtel for expropriation. No, so I think the effort that the Bolivian government has done to really uh, strengthen its capacity to sustain and develop its own economy is a good thing. Uh, there is just one uh, one element which uh, has to be addressed, and this is the the way that the Amazonian indigenous peoples are also being uh, addressed by the government. You know, most of these benefits go to the Andean. Indigenous Peoples but the Amazon Indigenous Peoples who have the forest and all that that has been the big problem like For instance, if you recall there was a, an issue about a highway that was going to be built inside that area the Tipnis Area and there was a lot of protest there So I think that uh, you know, and I, I'm asking to be invited by them and if I'm going to be invited That's one of the, the things I would like to ask more you know about the development path that they are taking because they're really also going towards extractives. Although, of course, the good thing there is that the benefits go back to the community. But the environmental consequences of this can is something that needs to be addressed as well. So, but you know, for me, whatever is said about the weaknesses, I still think that the the way Evo Morales has, you know, brought indigenous peoples into the into the political arena is unprecedented. you know. Before he was a president, no indigenous person can even step inside the presidential palace. And I've been there three times, and it's always full of indigenous peoples, which is something that we cannot be said of many of our countries.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, Thank you very much for your talk uh, today. Uh, you mentioned there are uh, 36 other special rapporteurs on mm-hmm. many different issues like extrajudicial yeah.
3: killings. Um, mm-hmm. Is there one for women. Yeah, there, there is, is one. The yeah. Environment. Um, yeah. Do you work with them on where there's uh, overlap? Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of different issues that
4: right. affect indigenous people. And, yeah. Know, yes, I do. I we we have um, like a joint communications whenever there is an issue, for instance, in a country, and it covers some of our. Uh, the, uh, concerns, then we do joint communication. So for instance, just recently, I did one with the, rapport, the uh, special rapporteur on toxic waste no? when uh, we spoke about the, uh, the oil spills in Peru, you know, which has really destroyed the community and, and, and really led to hunger. And so we made a joint uh, communication and then we had a joint press release. You know, uh, sometimes we don't because it also, you have to be very careful, like there is a rapporteur on minorities, you no? Know? And then recently I had a visit from the Kiowa Guarani who were being driven away from their communities. And there are indigenous peoples in Brazil. Then they went to visit the minorities uh, rapporteur and she wants to make a communication. I said, no, don't even make one because the moment you classify them as minorities, the government will be jumping up and down because they will say that they don't have rights to the lands. So so I have to be very careful in joining communications. It depends on the issue and it depends on the kind of rapporteur. No?
0: With all of these uh, competing forces of globalization, what role do you see education playing in terms of the education of indigenous people across the world and in terms of in educating non-indigenous people yeah.
4: In well, I, I believe that education has a very important role to play, no? Because the way the way our all our officials, our finance ministers especially, have been socialized or taught is that the the the, the that model is really the thing to push for, you know? Like so for instance. I mean, what's happening in Greece, where clearly austerity is not to be the measure, but because all the, the people believe austerity is a measure when you are indebted, you know, then that's what they implement. So I think that the education system should really try to provide different op- options or different views on a specific uh, phenomena. For instance, economics. For instance, most of the economics universities all over the world are basically promoting neoliberal economics, No? And I think that it's about time to, to challenge that and to say that there are other kinds of economies which, does, which don't have to be within that framework. And these are the problems with these economies. For indigenous peoples, I think that the system, the education system has to really uh, accommodate Indigenous knowledge holders, no, and the indigenous knowledge system, the way of thinking, the, the you know the the worldviews of indigenous peoples have really to be taught. It because the reason why indigenous peoples are so ashamed to identify as such is we are taught that our our we are backward, we are pagans, we are savages, you know, and even those kinds of uh, uh, of references are still in the books, no. So for education, they have to really study and criticize clearly the contents of books of schools to be able to remove all those uh, discriminatory references there is a lot of work in education and I hope our you who are educators can really think through what needs to be done but the ma- most important thing for me is that finally even in the in, you know there is this intergovernmental platform on uh, on uh, biodiversity and ecosystem services the main control one of their main conclusions is that indigenous knowledge is equally valid as other knowledge systems. You know? And therefore, these indigenous knowledge systems have to be you know, uh, researched, documented, and taught in the schools, as well as be integrated in policies of government. I think that is a very major uh, conclusion. And uh, just uh, it's like an advertisement. There's going to be an international conference in, in Paris just before the Climate Change Convention. And the topic is traditional knowledge and uh, indigenous people's traditional knowledge and climate change adaptation and mitigation. And basically, the conference is meant to, to receive reports or studies done that will prove that uh, indigenous people's knowledge have really been vital in ensuring better adaptation to climate change but also in solving the problem of climate change so I think those are the kinds of things we would like the education system to contribute to you are the ones who have knowledge of how to do research how to document so those kinds of meetings it will be good if you can go there you can go to the UNESCO website and uh, the call for papers is there no
0: Thank you very much for your outstanding lecture. Uh, I'm from Poland, from Polish University. I mm-hmm. want to ask one question, namely, um, uh, do you actually, I want to ask about the um, globalization of mm-hmm. academic standards? Yeah. More precisely, uh, particularly, we who are mm-hmm. working in um, universities mm-hmm. are not in this angle of the question is whether the issue of uh, of this uh, globalisation of academic standards, uh, do you deal with that? Does uh, the issue beyond the agenda of your uh, concerns or...? Anything?
4: Oh yes, uh, that's one of the things, that's why I'm looking at this whole investment issue, because I'm wanting to see how these investment laws and treaties are consistent or are promoting or are mindful of the, the social standards and environmental standards that have already been accepted internationally you no know? so uh, so i think it's important for us to do that because otherwise the the economic standards that are being globalized are really being globalized at the expense of social and environmental protection no, that's one of the key problems that uh, that is that we face now, because of the high sanctions, you know, the sanctions of these uh, kinds of uh, like say investment or trade agreements. These are the ones being implemented, and governments are so scared they will implement. You know, if the uh, a court uh, the court has ruled for them to pay, they will pay. Even Bolivia has paid 50 billion to to Bechtel. You know, because they cannot, they cannot get away from that. You know, so, so I think those kinds of global, the, the the standards that are being globalized, which undermine social and environmental standards, should really be be reviewed from that lens. And people who are affected by that, as well as states. Now even states are saying that they cannot do this. Germany, for instance, he was a case was filed against it by the Swedish water or this Vattenfall because Germany decided to close the nuclear power plants after the Fukushima uh, incident accident. No? And when they closed it, the, the Vattenfall filed a case against Germany saying that you have, uh, you have eaten into our profits because now we have to pay more expensively for energy because you close your nuclear power plants. What is that? You know, that's the kind of... A situation you face and and germany had to they had to go into a, a mediation and germany had to pay them you no know, so even states now i think seeing the impacts of these kinds of uh, decisions and globalization of these kinds of standards and I, I i just hope that they are going to speak out but if not indigenous people should speak out very strongly i think one more question <clears throat>
0: Hi Katrina. Hi
4: there. Um, I'm actually from NITV, Mm -hmm. and my question relates to um, what your suggestions might be as to other international models Mm -hmm. that Australia can use to strengthen the voice of our our Aboriginal
0: community.
4: I think at this stage, you know, we have great people out there. Mm-hmm. Courses, but there's always more we can do. So do you have any suggestions as to other international you know, um, models or systems that we can take into account? And implement In relation to, to media? In, in, in relation to, I mean, particularly in relation to um, the protection of space and Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And to go off yeah. the text phrase earlier, how we can do more yeah, well, you know, there is now, uh, <clears throat> of course, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has a lot of uh, articles related to protection of culture, cultural rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, of course, includes sacred sites. No? So that should be one of the key frameworks. But there's, there are also conventions of the UNESCO on Convention on Tangible Heritage, Convention on Intangible Heritage, a Convention on, uh, on uh, Cultural Heritage, no... Uh, although many of these are still weak on indigenous peoples, but it does uh, have that, and indigenous peoples are now challenging these conventions to say that the rights of indigenous peoples have to be central. In the implementation of these conventions, so uh, there are uh, conventions already in place. There is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and there are national laws as well that really uh, are uh, fight strongly protect secrets so sites, like the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act in the Philippines. It has a, it has a, a provision on that. No, so uh, if you take a look, at, if you take a look at some of the the issues related to cultural rights as well as cultural heritage and sacred sites. and as, uh, Even in the, in the biodiversity agreement, you know, it somehow has references also to this. It's not yet that strong. You know, we need to really make it more indigenous-sensitive, but at least the conventions are there and those instruments, and you can still make use of them. In fact, many cases now are ad- invoking those different conventions. Okay. <laughs> I forgot, I have to say that I'd like to give you the, you know, we do a lot of research, and this is my institution, so we did one on extractive industries, two actually, pitfalls and pipelines, and then we did one on (laughs) climate change and women, as well as indigenous people, self-determined development. So this contains a lot of the things that I've mentioned. So I'm (laughs) leaving this to you. you.
0: Just in closing, I want to acknowledge the uh, wonderful work that has gone into this event. Uh, First of all, the um, Faculty of Arts and Social Science and the Sydney Environment Institute, who co sponsored the events today. Um, Katrina Elder, who was so um, wonderful in assisting me. We were co uh, producers of things that happened. Uh, Alfred Coolwell, who played the Didgeridoo for us. Thank you so much, Alfred. I want to make special mention of our guests who came for the round table today from, first of all, the group that came from all over Australia. That is um, uh, too many names to mention, seven very important (coughs) people within the Aboriginal community in Australia who are doing fantastic work in defending their country. And also those uh, international guests we have who are part of the Worldwide Universities Network. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to this wonderful audience tonight. It's been a wonderful, stellar occasion for the University of Sydney. And most thanks, of course, to our guest, Victoria Tollikopoulos, thank you.